Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob here, and I've got Humans Are Underrated, What High Achievers Know That Brilliant Machines Never Will. And I've got Jeff Colvin with me today. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Bob. Hey, so you're out there in Manhattan. Is it um, yes. all sticky and summery out there? <laughs> Actually, it, it, it very often is, but today happens to be a glorious day. It is about all you could ask. Bright and sunny, not too hot, not humid. You know, this is this is so uh, fantastic. Now you're a pretty prolific writer. You know, tons of stuff going out there. Plus, um, this the stuff you're doing more on almost like on a daily basis. Yeah. And my first question is: Do you think machines will ever take over the job of writing? Well, you know, they're already taking over some of the job of writing, and the. Th- thing that's so hard for us to get our minds around is that they are getting better at it every day. So right now, computers are being used to write articles about um, sporting events and articles about corporate earnings. Uh, These are fairly routine things, but they're getting better. So for example, you know, the Associated Press, as of a year ago, have had all its corporate earnings articles written by computer. They have been computer written ever since. Uh, If you look at samples sometimes of articles about sports events written by computers, you know, you wouldn't say they're brilliant writing, but on the other hand, how do they compare with the human writing you see most often? And the answer is frequently it's indistinguishable. You can find this, but there's a company called Narrative Science that makes the software for writing. And so, you know, when are they going to catch up with me? When are they going to be doing the stuff I do better than I do it? I don't really know, but I, I have to believe that it may very, in fact, it almost inevitably will happen. The question is when, and I'm just hoping to get out of town ahead of the posse myself. I think there's so much content out there right now. I mean, a ridiculous amount of content out right now that it's really the opposite. It's like we, we, we've got tons of fantastic writers. We've, now we have machines that can do uh, a so-so job, but people aren't actually reading anymore. And <laughs> right. maybe that's what we need, need a machine to be doing is reading for us and then downloading while we sleep. <laughs> well, you know, uh, nothing is crazy anymore. I mean, uh, it's because, you know, I laugh at that. But the truth is, there's probably someone working on it. Uh, we can't dismiss any possibility anymore. Well, we do live in in uh, the world of the future now. I mean, we've got uh, these incredibly powerful computers that we stick in our pockets and we don't even realize are computers. Um and then, you know, I'm, I'm a big science fiction fan, and I go back and read some books from the 60s and 70s, and it's like, oh my gosh, they couldn't even imagine how advanced uh, the technology is here today. But on a lot of stuff, on the social level, on the acceptance of machines, on the acceptance of technology, we're way behind. So my question is really... Um, do you think that it's not the ability for 
machines uh, to do stuff for us. It's really the society's ability to catch up and accept it, almost you know, like the Industrial Revolution with people writing, saying, no, no, you're taking my job, you can't do it. We're just not ready for more free time and, and a utopian state. Yeah, well, there is a big cultural challenge in all of this. Uh, that's just as you describe people uh, accepting the new technology and embracing it and saying, okay, this is what's available now. Uh, we're not going to go backwards. How can I make use of this and uh, live a better life? And look, we see this all the time, right? And it, it, it tends to be age-related so that older people say, no, no, I don't ever want to read a book uh, on a handheld device. I want a printed book that I can actually flip the pages of. Well, that's fine. But, you know, the truth is then you get them their first Kindle or their first iPad and they start to say, well, you know, maybe this is pretty great. Um, it, some people will accept this easily, and this is a transition like others we've gone through before. And there will be a the, the hard part really is for the people who started in an earlier age and now have to adapt to a new age because our kids today are having no problem, right? They're growing up with this and they can't imagine living any other way. So I think that's. It's the challenge you're um, talking about, and it all look it it all happens so much faster than we believe. You know, you were referring to early science fiction and how they couldn't imagine what would happen. It reminded me that when Aldous Huxley wrote *Brave New World* in about 1930 or so, he was trying to imagine the future of six or. 700 years in the future. Well, by the 1960s, most of what he'd written about had happened. Uh, we, we really have a hard time accepting how fast these changes come about. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about your book. Why did you think it's a good time to be putting out a book that talks about what you talk about in this book? Well, because we are in an era where uh, technology is taking over so much human work, stuff that we thought it could never do, that it leaves a lot of people asking, well, what's going to be left for us? What kind of work is going to be left for us to do? How am I going to earn a living? How am I going to earn a rising standard of living? And for that matter, how will my kids? And it, it truly is astonishing what's going on. I mean, uh, not only factory work that machines have taken over for a long time, but high-value, highly paid intellectual work. For example, uh, in lawsuits, sometimes lawyers have to analyze thousands of pages of documents for the discovery process. Well, you used to have to be a lawyer to do that, and you build at a very impressive hourly rate for that work. Uh, computers now read those documents, analyze them for relevance, and can see patterns in hundreds of thousands of pages that no human could detect. They can do this 24 hours a day. They don't need to sleep. They don't need to rest. They don't get distracted, and they can do it not only faster and cheaper than human lawyers, but better. Uh, driving a car, I can show you predictions from, what, nine years ago by very intelligent writers saying it's just too 
hard. A computer won't be able to handle that task. It requires too much judgment, split-second decisions. You know, a computer can't do it. Well, computers are doing it, and they're going to take over the job completely. Everywhere we turn, we see, what, okay, what's going to be left for us to do? And so that's the question I started with. What will people do better than computers? I felt that people needed to think about that. This kind of reflects a, a little bit of what we were talking about earlier about society's ability to accept things. Um, a great example is uh, Uber, which is a, an app that enables you to get a car that's driven by a local instead of going into a, a yellow cab and, and experience the, the yellow cab experience. Um, and in France, they freaked out and they, they, the, the cabbies basically stopped uh, people driving on bridges and, and are up in arms. Imagine what's going to happen when they start saying, well, you know what, um, we've passed these new laws and there are going to be no more cabbies. I mean, it's just going to be these automated machines. And there's some huge economic advantages. I mean, number one, they're saying if, the, if we converted the whole of North America over to automated cars, it would give us a massive shot in the arm for the economy. Um, lower, uh, less cars on the road, more efficiency. I mean, it, there's so many positive things that are going on, but we are going to have to go through a huge social upheaval for people to accept that. So your book isn't really about that part. It's more about the things that machines will never be able to do, which is be a human. I, I state this very carefully because in one way, you could say that the machines will be able to do everything. I mean, you can say machines will never be able to handle emotion, for example. Well, that's being disproven right now. I mean, there's a new robot from SoftBank called Pepper. There are other, this is a whole category now called social robots uh, that are being developed by a number of companies. Uh, but but the, take the Pepper robot because that's available right now. It can detect your emotions by listening to your words, evaluating your tone of voice, looking at your facial expression, and looking at your body language. It can use all those things to figure out your emotion. It can then respond in an emotional way and what it believes to be an appropriate emotional way in all those same ways with words, tone of voice, facial expression, and body language. So, and, you know, it's only getting better. So he, robots can already deal with emotions. I'm assuming that eventually machines will be able to do anything we ask of them. The question then I think that we should be asking is, what is it that humans will value even if a machine could do the same thing? And the answer to that is the deepest experiences of human interaction are things we will continue to value. Interpersonal relations, speaking, building relationships, empathizing above all, that's the foundation of everything else. Being able to understand what someone else is thinking and feeling and then respond in an appropriate way. And we will value these things because we evolved to value them. That's what makes it all so powerful. Back on the savannah 200,000 years ago, human beings were able to thrive because they lived in groups, not individually. 
It's the human interaction that enabled people to live in groups that meant survival. So our ability to relate to one another is connected in our deepest nature with survival. It's the most powerful connection there could be. So those are the things, the deep human abilities of interaction that we are going to continue to value increasingly with time. You don't think that we're slowly going to wean our way out of that? Well, I don't think so, because uh, although you raise an interesting point, but I mean, I think we will continue to value those things for a very, very long time. I mean, I suppose we could evolve further to a point where we didn't value them, but that would take thousands of years. It's not something that we or our kids need to worry about. It's true that through our increasing use of digital devices, these social abilities that I'm talking about, empathy, storytelling, relationship building, collaborating, these abilities are withering. They are atrophying because we're not using them enough. We are spending our time staring at screens. And that's a real problem. But it's also an opportunity because it means the people who are good at those things will be even more valuable. Yeah, it it almost seems like um, our inability to let go and let technology do more for us and then be able to step back and say, okay, now that I have all this extra time, maybe I can do more stuff to help people. Maybe I can do more stuff to deal with deforestation. Maybe I could be spending my time and energy improving the world and the improving the lot of other people in life. But it doesn't seem that we're able to do that. And, and the structure of capitalism right now isn't really geared to that type of society. Um, I know Philip Collar just wrote an amazing book called uh, Confronting Capitalism. Basically, the whole premise of the book is like we have to make capitalism sustainable so we can move forward into the future. And a lot of that is a non-greed-based society. Do you think that is the biggest hiccup that we have? Well, the issue that you mentioned, which is uh, people having time to devote to other things, um, other events, other uh, activities, I should say, that may not be involved with earning a living. I mean, this this is becoming a big topic now. And, you know, there are even uh, academics who are studying this uh, they call it uh, post-workism, okay? The idea that they really believe that we are headed toward a situation where vast numbers of people won't have to work because technology will do most of the work better than we can do it. And the question that arises is, is this paradise or is it misery? Uh On the one hand, you can say, well, it's paradise. Most people don't have to work. Machines are producing everything we need or or want. Uh, We'll figure out a way, of course, this is where it gets tough, but we'll figure out a way to distribute the largesse that is being produced, and most people can then and do other things, just as you were describing. They can work on improving the environment, or they can paint, or write music, or whatever. Well, okay, uh, there is that argument, but there's also the argument that work 
is how many people derive a sense of self-worth. And it is, in fact, crucial to people's feelings of well-being. People who are unemployed, even if they're receiving unemployment compensation, typically, you know, are not happy. They, they don't feel useful. And that's a real problem. And so we may be entering genuinely uncharted territory here. We Obviously, in all of human history, we have never had um, a situation like that. You know, will the post-work environment actually arrive? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure that it will, by the way. Uh, I can make an argument that it won't. But the, the idea that we're now contemplating that, that is kind of staggering. Yeah, and it goes back to what we were talking earlier in the interview, like uh, Aldous Huxley writing about stuff that was 600 years in the future, and we're talking about this now. In 40 or 50 years, it might be a fait accompli where, oh my gosh, this has already happened. Yes, it could be. It, it happens faster than we imagine, almost always. Mm. You know, it not to hark back on science fiction books, but I was reading in one the other day, and it was about a society that was in that state and had been in that state for many, many years. And they were describing this woman working. And basically, you could work if you wanted to, and you would go to the factory, and then the machine that was pumping out tens of thousands of these units would slow down, make you a secondary production line, and say, yeah, I want to, do you want to construct a car? Here you go. And it would let the humans work on it incredibly inefficiently, but it didn't matter because the machine knew that that is what humans needed to feel or uh, have a balanced reality and a, a balanced life. So maybe that is what the solution is. Well, maybe it is. Isn't it funny, though, that somebody was thinking about that all that time ago and then thinking about how society might respond? And who knows? You know, maybe maybe that's right. Now, in Chapter 5, you say um, the critical 21st century skill. Yes. What is that skill? It's empathy. And by empathy, people need to understand, empathy is not just feeling someone else's pain. Empathy is discerning what somebody else is thinking and feeling, whatever it may be, and then responding in some appropriate way. So the person could be in pain, but the person could be angry or happy or, you know, you're or trying to kill you or, you know, whatever. It could be anything. The ability to understand what somebody else is thinking and feeling and then respond in some appropriate way. Everything else springs from that foundation. You kind of go on further later on in the book saying that it, if empathy becomes the most important thing that we can do, then women are going to have this amazing advantage or people that have natural empathy. Like I, I'm a very empathy-driven person. I can put myself in other piece of people's shoes quite easily. And for me, that's the definition of empathy. It's like, can you, right. can you suffer like the person that's suffering in front of you just by listening to their story and feel just as bad without the actual history behind it? And I think that's what empathy is, relating to somebody else's pain or, or not even pain, just well, their whatever. reality. Yeah, yeah, their reality. And Good. I really think that we have a very little empathy because if we had more empathy, a lot of the horrible things that are going on in the world right now wouldn't be going on. So what happens to the world 
as empathy becomes the most important part, becomes almost like the new economy. Well, I mean, a lot of things happen. And I should point out, you know, people say, well, how can you get a job, you know, being empathetic? Well, what is really going on here is that people in any kind of work, in any field, will be more valuable if they have this ability. So, uh, look, I've spoken to the chief information officers, you know, the computer experts at various companies, and they have said to me the same thing over and over. You know, a brilliant software engineer, if that's all he does is sit in his cubicle and write code, is less valuable every day. What I need, they say, is a brilliant software engineer who can empathize because then they can feel what the customer is feeling when they're dealing with our product and thus design a better customer experience. That engineer can collaborate better with other people on the team here because he can see what they're feeling and thinking. So those are the people who are valuable. A lawyer who is empathetic is going to be more valuable than a lawyer who's not empathetic. A salesperson is, you know, it, it, a business owner, it applies across the economy. The people who are empathetic are going to be more valuable than those who aren't, and their advantage is going to get bigger every day. Well, you know, uh, the thing with, with empathy, it's almost like a creative state. It's if you empathize with something or somebody or, or whatever or a situation, you tend to looking at it in a way that's different than when you're being exposed to it or being having that same event reported to you. And because of the empathy, it opens up all these channels of creativity where you can start to see solutions or ideas or realize what you need to do. Isn't that something that is special to the human uh, state of being compared to uh, a manufactured device that would try and do that. Well, yeah, and the the important thing there is, uh, let's assume that human. This may sound silly, but you know we're talking about how science fiction becomes fact. Let's assume that humans remain remain in charge here. Okay, and I state it because. You see a lot written and hear a lot about the possibility that humans won't be in charge anymore, that maybe uh, machines will somehow take over. I say, look, maybe it'll happen, but we got plenty to worry about between now and then. Uh, so, you know, let's just assume that he, the, the world continues to be run by and for humans. Okay. okay. Well, then we are in charge of deciding what problems we're going to solve and how to solve them. And that always has to be done in groups. We have to get constituencies represented. Groups of people always come up with better ideas than single people do. And so this all has to be done collaboratively. And empathy, the ability to understand what the other members of the group are thinking and feeling, becomes critical. In fact, there's very good research on this, fascinating research on this, that that's what makes a team effective. Not the stuff we always thought made teams effective, like their uh, cohesiveness or their motivation or even the leadership of the team. What makes them effective more than anything else is the ability of the team members to understand what the other team members are thinking and feeling. There's a test of social sensitivity, as they call it, but it's empathy. Uh, the, the 
higher the team members on average score on that test, the more effective the team is at accomplishing whatever tasks they're trying to accomplish. The IQ of the team members means very little. The social sensitivity of the team members means a lot. Mm. And a, a lot of that's based on um, trust. You know, if, if you've got a team that's been around and, and when you're in that group, everybody has a lot of fun, everybody knows what the limitations are, you can joke around, but you still can be incredibly efficient. And then you have somebody else come into that group, they have a very hard time getting to that level. That's right. And in fact, I talk about this in the book because there is research um, that touches on this. Uh Trust turns out to be extremely important in the effectiveness of teams. And a couple things come out of that. One, the research shows very clearly that the best, most effective way to build trust among team members is for them to interact in person. Not on the phone, not on Skype, not by texting, not by emailing, but to interact in physically in person. That's, that's what builds trust better than anything else. The other thing that comes out of it is if trust is really critical to a team, and it is, then teams that have been together for a long time have advantages over teams that haven't. It's just what you were saying. When a new person comes in, you know, they have a hard time at first. And what we see is actually some of the most effective companies have teams at the top that have stayed together for a long time. And that's really rare because in business, if you have a good team at the top, people, other companies are always trying to steal some of those people away, or they may just have ambitions of their own and want to go someplace else. Trying to keep a great team together in a company is really, really hard. And what we see is for example, Apple, the most valuable company on planet Earth, has a team at the top that has been together for over a decade. And it's a multi-member team. It's incredible that they could have been kept together for that long, but they have been. Uh, Whole Foods Market, an incredibly successful supermarket chain, is the same. They have a team at the top that has stayed together for over a decade, which is extremely unusual. Uh, one more thing comes out of it, which is there are a lot of really successful two-person teams. That's a really small team, obviously. But if you want trust, a team of just two people who really have been together for a long time is kind of the ultimate trust and teamwork. And there are many examples across corporate history of companies that had a duo at the top that stayed together sometimes for a very long time with tremendous success. I suppose the most famous example is Berkshire Hathaway, where it's been Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger for 50 years now. And we know how well they've done. Yeah, it is amazing. And and once again, it goes back to uh, human nature and doubt. If you're doing it by yourself, there's always this, uh, am I going too far? You, you can't see yourself. You're behind your eyes. But if you have a team member or several team members that can basically be a mirror for you and say, okay, we have to settle down or Bob, that's a little on the crazy side, but we like the direction. Let's mellow it out. If you have that type of guidance plus trust, you're unstoppable, really. 
And you, you've really identified it very well, because what the best groups do is a couple of things. They get a lot of, ish, of ideas on the table. In other words, people are, 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 they feel free to speak up. They're not inhibited. And that means also that nobody monopolizes the conversation. There aren't any blowhards on the team, you know, who take up all the time. They get a lot of good ideas from everybody onto the table. And then they're very good at expressing their views of each idea. Uh, sometimes it's just through these tiny little uh, expressions. People say, yeah, good, or what, or, or hmm. And... This, I mean, researchers have actually mapped this stuff. And teams that do that, they get a lot of ideas on the table, and then they are very efficient at involving everyone in assessing the ideas. Those are the ones that come up with the best solutions. And it means no blowhards, you know, no jerks who dominate the conversation. And it means people who are sensitive who can express themselves well and tell what and and read what everybody else is saying uh, as they assess ideas that's what's that's what makes a great team and by the way one last thing you mentioned it fleetingly earlier who's really good at that kind of thing well the answer is women are on average a lot better than men at it and there's a ton of research on this, but do we really need the research, right? Don't we all actually know this already? Uh, w women are much better than men. Absolutely. I mean, really, I mean, any time that I, I had a large, uh, well, not a large team, but a, uh, a team that I needed to get stuff done, I always ended up with way more women on that team just because they would harmonize more, more stuff would get done, and uh, it got to the point where my main job was trying to come up with more things for them to do because they just became way too efficient. <laughs> it's a great story. And I mean, there you go. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, how to tackle this book. Is, is it a type of book that you should read cover to cover or can you kind of jump in once you've got through the introduction? Well, you know, you I'll tell you, it's the kind of book where you should read the first uh, – three chapters, I think, uh, so you can understand the rest. But then the rest of the book um, is about these different abilities, uh, or at least several of the chapters are about these different abilities. So empathy to start with, um, creative collaborating, uh, storytelling. You know, there are separate chapters on these things, but they all do blend together. Um, and then there is a chapter, there's a whole chapter about women because there is an argument, you know, that it is becoming a woman's world or more strictly speaking, a more female world. The truth is all of our brains mostly do the same stuff. It's, there's more overlap than separation between men's and women's brains on average. But everybody can develop these abilities, men and women. And by the way, not every woman is great at them and not every man is bad at them. So it is, but it's becoming a more female world. The, the, the economy is going to reward those abilities more than it has in the past. And then there's a chapter on what 
organizations are doing and what individuals can do to get better at these deeply human uh, skills of interaction. And it's surprising because most people think of these abilities as traits rather than skills. They think it's something you're just born with or you're not. Uh, You know, he's a real people person. Uh, She really knows how to tell a story. But they're not traits. They're skills. They can be trained. And they are being trained in a lot of organizations. You know, that's a very interesting point where the economy changes and and the companies that have this tendency will be rewarded. And, And it reminds me of several of my clients that are saying, we have to get way more middle and upper management women in place because we're discovering that a lot of the large organizations that we're dealing with and, uh, really fastly, uh, companies that are super successful are run and managed by women. And we just can't even get these accounts anymore because they want to see several women during the presentation. The market speaks, right? The market is speaking. And so uh, it, you know, it will happen. And I, this is, I really do believe it's going to pick up speed as a trend. People sometimes ask me, they say, well, there still aren't that many women CEOs in the Fortune 500. And it's true, there, there aren't that many. It's, uh, what, around 25 or 27, something like that right now. Uh, but, A, it's a lot more than it was just a few years ago. So the trend line is going up pretty strongly. And the other thing is, it's just becoming increasingly clear that it's silly to imagine that there should be any barriers at all uh, to women becoming CEOs of any kind of company. My favorite examples are that the CEOs of General Motors and Lockheed Martin are both women. And a lot of people would have said, gee, you know, if ever there were businesses that are just classic guy businesses, those are the ones, right? Pickup trucks and fighter jets, you can't get much more guy I like than that. Well, no, that's just not true. Both those companies are being run by women CEOs and run very, very well. So, you know, I, I think we're going to see rapid progress. You're a pretty well-read guy. You've written tons of stuff. You continue to write. You edit a lot of stuff. Uh, my question is, when you were writing this book, when you were taking your your knowledge and putting it on paper, because that's something that changes the way you perceive it. What was an aha moment or or what was the biggest aha moment for you when something really crystallized for you? First, on the subject of women, I was very surprised by the extent of the research. You know, I knew uh, that women would be better at these skills, or I should say I sensed it, I strongly suspected it. But when I really got into the research, I was astonished to find how wide, how extensive the research is, and how powerful it is. So that was one thing. Uh, Another thing that dawned on me as I really focused on this work and thought about it was this central idea, don't ask what computers can't do. I went into this doing what everybody else has always done when they approach this topic. I said, well, then, what is it that computers inherently cannot do? And the more I looked into it, the more I realized, you know what? Every time somebody answers that question, they're wrong. Because it's only a matter of time before a computer can do 
whatever we think it can't do. And so then I thought, well, okay, let's accept that reality. Eventually, they'll be able to do anything that we can think of. What then is going to be our value? And that's what led me into the research on uh, the interpersonal abilities, the skills of human interaction, and our evolutionary history in developing those skills and what they mean to us. And that's when I realized that they're going to have value no matter what. Um, And that was, as you say, a real aha moment. Now, for the average Joe out there, this, you know, a lot of this is like, whoa, I'm not ready for this. What, what do you think people should be doing to get ready other than obviously reading your book? Should they be changing their attitude? Should they be considering they should become more empathetic? I mean, what should people be doing today, tomorrow, and over the next couple of years? Well, the first thing they should do is look at the job they have now or the work they would like to do and say, does that job require skills of human interaction? If it doesn't, and you know, there's a fair chance still that it might, might not, if it doesn't require those skills, then you've got to figure that a machine, technology of some kind, is going to do that job faster, cheaper, and probably better than you, and probably sooner than you think. So if the job you have or want doesn't require the skills of human interaction, first step is be finding a different job that does require those skills. And then, in any case, whether you already have such a job or not, try to do an honest assessment of yourself to figure out, are you good at these skills? Like I say, they're deep human skills, but that doesn't mean every human is good at. So try to figure out if you're good at them or how just how good you are. And actually, I created an assessment for this, which is not in the book, but you can go online and get it easily enough, roboeconomyquiz.com, and take the test. And it'll just tell you where you stand. And then if, if you're just okay, not so hot, which would be pretty normal, um, you can figure out ways to get better. There is certain a fair amount of material in my book about different ways to get better. Uh, But whether you do it that way or another, just keep in mind that you can get better. A lot of people think these skills of human interaction are traits, not skills. You know, we say somebody's a, he's a real people person. She can really tell a story. Well, they're not traits. They are skills. They can be trained and they are being trained in a lot of organizations. So you, you can be better at these things. And frankly, we'll all need to get better. Now, in the book, you, you know, you have lots of examples and stories and, and stuff like that. Is there a, a story that jumps out for you in particular? It's a good question. Um, there are a couple of them. One is a story that was told to me by the HR chief at South West Airlines. And this was some time ago. You you won't be able to identify anyone, but she said, you know, we hired an IT guy, fairly high level, great credentials. And we quickly began to suspect maybe we had made a mistake because she said she stopped him in the hall after he'd been there for a week and said, uh, so how do you like it? How's it going? And he said to her, you know, people here are strange. He said, they stop me in the hall and 
ask me how I'm doing. And they really want to know. Uh, you know, they, uh, they want to talk to me uh, and just tell stories and stuff. He said, I just want to get back to my cube and work. Well, okay. Now, that shouldn't be too surprising. I mean, there's practically a caricature of the IT guy. You know, he just wants to go back and sit at his machine and work. It was a real problem at Southwest because at that company, the skills of human interaction are practically what the whole thing is built, built on. Airlines are a terrible business. They're incredibly, it's incredibly difficult to make a dollar uh, consistently. Southwest figured out how to do it. A, in dealing with the customers where, you know, the flight attendants and others are famously uh, funny and friendly and helpful and so forth. But also within the company. It's a tough business. If people are going to get along okay, it helps to have people who like to talk to each other, who care about each other, like to tell jokes and stuff like that. The culture of Southwest is a big reason they get thousands of applicants for every job they have. And so here's a guy who didn't fit the culture. He didn't like to talk to people. He didn't like to tell jokes and sit around and find out how others were doing. And they realized they can't allow that. Even one person, they can't allow that. And so they decided finally he had to go. And he did. They showed him out the door. Uh, but it's a really powerful lesson. These traits of human interaction can make or break a company. And the best companies guard their culture ferociously. And even one person, and I've heard this from other companies as well, even one person who violates the norms of the culture is one too many. You can't tolerate it. What would you say for, you know, people that, you know, they've taken the test, that they've, you know, they've read your book and stuff like that. Is there anywhere else they can go to get more information? Well, um, that's a really good question because, um, you know, offhand, what comes to mind is a few things. There's no one great place um, that I can recommend. But, you know, if you just, I tell you, it's a funny thing. Go to Google News and just set a news alert for empathy. Okay, Just have it give you every day stories from the media that are about empathy, A, you will be astonished at how many there are, at how many people are talking about this, how many organizations are talking about it. And then you also will come upon organizations that exist for uh, purposes of propagating this. Uh, like I'll mention one, the Ashoka Foundation, A-S-H-O-K-A, nonprofit, the Ashoka Foundation. Uh, um, empathy is what they're all about. And, um, you know, that will really give you a lot to learn about. I'll mention one other thing, too. And this is really more just to inspire a person. But I'll tell you, it will inspire you more than you ever imagined. Just go to YouTube and type in Cleveland Clinic Empathy. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic made a four-minute video with no spoken words in it. 
that's just about empathy because they have launched a huge program to train their entire staff in this. And it just watch the video. You will not be the same by the time you get to the end. It has been watched well over a million, I think over two million times at this point. Um, and I don't want to tell you too much about it, except that I highly recommend you have a look. Humans are underrated. What high achievers know that brilliant machines never will. I've had Jeff Colvin on the line. And before we let you go, Jeff, you've got another book, Talent is Overrated. Which book should you read first? <laughs> well, um, that's a really good question. You know what? I'd say read the current one. Read the new one. Humans are underrated first. Because the second one is about how people become great performers at whatever they do. At, at absolutely anything. So if you read the first book, the humans are underrated book, and decide that you need to be better at certain skills of human interaction, then the talent book will, I hope, uh, really open your mind to how that's done. It's based on, it's not my opinion, it's based on 30 years of research into how great performers become great. And, um, I believe it will persuade you that you can get better at the skills of human interaction or any other skills you can think of. Well, couldn't have said it better. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash business book talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.